Loeffler and this is Founder Coffee. Every two weeks I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk, getting to know the person behind the company. For this 14th episode, I talked to David Cancel, founder and CEO of Drift, a leading conversational marketing and sales platform. Drift is not David's first baby, nor his first success story. He was previously Chief Product Officer at HubSpot after his company Performable was acquired. Before that, he also launched and sold Ghostry, Lookery and Compete. We talk about his backstory, how he likes to build both startups and flowers, why he's still involved in every single hire and why he doesn't believe in development sprints. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi David, it's great to have you on Founder Coffee. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Ah, me too. You're a founder of Drift. Uh, we all love Drift, uh, but for oh, those who don't love Drift yet, uh, what do you do? <laughs> so, uh, so Drift is a SaaS app and it helps people, uh, go, lives on your website and it basically is like taking your best sales rep and making them available 24-7, 365. And we do that mm-hmm. through conversational marketing and, and a bot that has conversations with the people that come to your website in real time. Yeah. So I hear live chat. I hear chatbots somehow. Uh, yes. You, you mentioned sales. Is kind of mm-hmm. the, uh, the, 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 the target you're focusing on? Is it like sales live yeah, chat? Or? It's, uh, it's sales. And, you know, many people have tried to use uh, live chat for sales for at least the last decade. And, they weren't successful because they didn't. Uh, they were using a support tool in order to do it, and what mm-hmm. we did was uh, we were the first to bring bots to live chat in order just for sales to do real time yeah. communication, real time routing, all that kind of stuff. And so we defined this category called uh, conversational marketing to do all this. But yeah, we do chat, we do email, we do basically everything that has to do with a conversation. So it goes beyond chat, goes into email and, and other places. So it's also a marketing automation tool and some, somehow a sales automation tool. It's a sales and marketing automation tool, right? We, we believe that marketing and sales is coming together, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been trying to do that a long time. And we're, we're organizing them around two things, conversations and revenue. And so we're, the, we're a platform that lets them do that. And so uh, we all know that if you have salespeople on your team, that no one's going to sell anything until they have a conversation, those salespeople. Mm-hmm and marketing systems and automation and all that stuff for years had been focused on putting hurdles between you, the prospect and the salesperson. And what we do is remove those hurdles and create like a fast pass, a direct line between that prospect and uh, the salesperson. Yeah. Is, it, is, this, is this a sort of, um, how can I say, uh, a sort of issue that grew on you when you were at HubSpot or how did it how did this come about? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I was at a, I was chief product officer at HubSpot before this. Uh, so I ran product engineering, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. CRM, built sales products, um, built all the marketing products. And um, I, I didn't have the idea then. What I did see when I was leaving HubSpot, um, when I left right around the time we went public as a company, I was mm-hmm. looking at messaging and the reason I was looking at messaging was because I was fascinated with uh, the way that it was being adopted and it had gone from you know just geeks like me using messaging to everyone mm-hmm. in the world using messaging as, their, as the first thing that they wanted to use. And so I was fascinated by why that was happening and why that was creating um, 
you know, empowering companies like Slack and other companies to grow so quickly. And so I, I was looking at that and I, w- I would say I was obsessed with that. I didn't know how I was going to build, what kind of product I was going to build because of that. But I just knew mm-hmm. that uh, maybe the time was right to finally do something with messaging and uh, sales and marketing. Yeah. So, you, you, yeah. So it's more like Slack, but then externally. Yes. Uh, cool. You you mentioned you were at HubSpot before. Yes. Um, is that is that the the first uh, startup you were ever involved in, um, uh, or or were there others before? And where did it kind of start? Yeah, no, uh, uh, there's been many. So uh, I started four companies before starting Drift. One of those mm-hmm. companies, my fourth company, I started was called Performable, and it was acquired by HubSpot in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, June 2011, and that's how I got to HubSpot. Uh, I had yeah. sold all the other companies, my three others before that, but I had never gone as part of the acquisition. I had always l- made it a point to leave, and this was the uh-huh. first time that I had gone. And so I went into HubSpot when we were around $30 million in AR and around 200, and, 200 employees. And then I left when we were over $100 million and cool. going public, and we were... I think 1,200 employees at that point. So we added mm-hmm. people in the time that I was there. Yeah. So can, can you give us an idea of what your first startup was? Sure. It was so, it was so long ago. Uh, so I started a comp, uh, my first startup that I was part of two startups before I started my own. And those were in New York. And, but the first company mm-hmm. I started on my own was in, two, in um, I started in November of 2000. So 18 years ago. And wow. uh, yeah, a long time ago, or almost 18 <laughs> years ago. And uh, that company was called Compete. And mm-hmm. uh, we sold that company in 2007 to WPP, which is the world's largest marketing PR kind of conglomerate based in mm-hmm. the UK. And um, what we did at Compete was, it was pretty much SaaS, although we didn't, SaaS didn't exist as a category. We called it like e-commerce, uh, e-commerce for business or some, some crazy dumb idea, uh, dumb thing like that. Cause we didn't have a category. And what mm-hmm. we did was we sold marketing intelligence on, uh, to mostly fortune 100 companies at that point, although we had a freemium offering as well that people could buy. Mm-hmm. And it was just a crazy time. Cause basically what you use compete for was to figure out how you were doing relative to your competitors. And so you can use tools like Alexa now and, um, and a, a lots of other kind of competitive intelligence tools that yeah. and others. But at the time, uh, none of those existed when we, when we started Compete. Yeah. So it was like a, a very exclusive thing that you could see how your website was compared yeah. to other ones. Yeah, exactly. And we would, uh, we competed with like Nielsen and Comscore and a couple of companies like that, um, big companies. And, yeah. uh, and basically you would buy it to understand not only like how much traffic you were getting and traffic sources and all that stuff that you can get from like SEM rush and that stuff now, mm-hmm. uh, but to get like real insight on like, why were people making the choices they were, how could, what would you, what could you change in your strategy to be able to attract those people, all sorts of stuff like that. And in the beginning we had to, we, it was a freemium type product, but no one was buying freemium at that point. You got to remember no. in 2000, uh, they were buy, barely buying books from Amazon in 2000, right? That was, <laughs> yeah, there was not much happening. Not many people were putting their credit card online, if you can believe that, 18 years ago. And so we had to pivot the company a little bit and really focus on this 
Fortune 500, Fortune 100 type of customer. So super mm-hmm. expensive. And they would pay us on average of uh, $350,000 a year per subscription. And many of those were multi-million dollar a year subscriptions. And mm-hmm. uh, we would sell to think of all the travel companies you could think, finance companies. Later on, before we got acquired, we were our biggest customer was Google and we were selling to Google and eBay and Microsoft and all those kind of uh, tech companies you could imagine. But before that, it was really travel, automotive, like all the car companies, yeah. uh, car companies in the world, um, finance and all those, all sorts of verticals like that. Yeah. And, and I, I guess WPP was selling for you somehow was a channel and at some point they figured like, yeah, they needed, uh, yeah, WPP was, is, was and is, you know, the biggest, you know, communication services company in the world. I think they mm-hmm. all about it, call themselves, but they own PR, they own market research, they own all that kind of stuff. And um, they own hundreds, if not thousands of companies. And what they wanted was uh, our ability to see what was happening across all of these uh, clients that they had. So we had that competitive intelligence data that no one had and mm-hmm. so gave them kind of an unfair advantage in, in their client work, but also in the strategy work that they were selling to those, to those massive companies. Got it. And what was your, your, your second startup about then? <laughs> so many. Um, I started yeah. a company called uh, Lookery and, uh, and that was almost like a accidental uh, startup because I was, uh, I left Compete when we sold it. I wasn't doing anything. I was just hanging out. And, yeah. uh, and then me and a friend kind of accidentally started this company. We didn't, weren't actually trying to start a company. And no. what Lookery was, was uh, at the time, this was 2007, uh, the summer of 2007, Facebook launched their platform. So this mm-hmm. was the first time Facebook had launched a platform. They were you know, if you could believe a couple hundred million people using Facebook at the time versus mm-hmm. where we are now, billions. Um, and um, we had all of these friends that were building uh, products on uh, apps, yeah. like on top of Facebook. I remember. Yeah. And, uh, and they were everything from games to like horoscopes to like everything you could think of. There was a million different things. Later, it just became games. But before that, it was everything you could think of. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just happened to be friends of ours. We knew all those people. Some of those companies later became companies like uh, Zynga and other companies that went public. But before they did that, um, they didn't have a way to make money. And so we created this advertising network called Lookery. And to help okay. our friends make money, we sold that advertising network to add knowledge. I forgot what year it was, 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then um, I started another thing. I started something called Ghostory. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, was, I use that. Oh, you use it? Yeah. So I started Ghostory uh, around that time, 2009. And, uh, and then I sold it. And then I now it's owned by uh, Mozilla in Germany. And uh ah. Yeah, and now, and then I started Performable, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. It all seems kind of in the in the marketing well, sphere somehow. Yeah, I've been in uh, for eighteen years now. I've been in marketing, sales, data analytics kind of world. Yeah, but it's the first time you can uh, bridge from marketing more to sales and actually yes. talking to people. Yeah, although you know it's all it's all related. Like at at HubSpot, I I 
built the CRM and built mm-hmm. the, the sales productivity tools, the sales enablement tools. So that was there. But then also the first startup I was ever a part of, which I was part of the founding team, but I was not the founder, mm-hmm. uh, was called Bolt, B-O-L-T. And uh, Bolt yeah. was uh, one of the first social networks on the web. Again, we didn't have the category called social network. So we called mm-hmm. it community website. And uh, we had millions of users, which back then was incredible because they all had to uh, dial up through modems mm-hmm. to get online. And, uh, and in that case, we were building, uh, we were bridging some of these same things, even though it was a social network. I mean, we built something that was like um, threadless, so you could create your own clothing mm-hmm. a long time ago, 1997. And uh, we built... Um, but something that kind of looks like Drift, although we called it Zap, but it was like an instant messenger that, but it was more that people could talk to each other. And mm-hmm. uh, we built that back then. And uh, we built a lot of this stuff that now seems new, but I've, I've basically been doing the same thing for a long time. <laughs> How does that feel? Uh, it feels, you know, it feels like I'm finally figuring a little bit out. There's still a lot to figure out. Yeah. How, how did you how did you get into all of this like 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 before the startups? Yeah, how did I get into? I, you're yeah. an engineer by background, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, th- yeah, that first startup, I I was the chief software architect and built most of the software there and yeah. machines and everything like that. Uh, so the way I got into it was, I grew up. My parents, when I grew up, my parents both worked for themselves. They were mm-hmm. immigrants to the United States, and uh, and so I always grew up wanting to start a business, but I didn't know what a business was. I, I didn't know why I had this concept in my mind uh, because mm-hmm. back then this was before the internet. There was no, I didn't have any role models that did any of this stuff. I didn't know anyone who owned the business. So I, for some reason I had this in, in my in my head and I always tell people that before recent history, before Mark Zuckerberg, like nobody wanted to be an entrepreneur. This was not a glorious uh, a thing to start a company. Uh, entrepreneur, I didn't even know that word uh, mm-hmm. when I first started. And, you know, starting your own business or, you know, doing what we do now in terms of startup were, was, you know, people would think you were a loser, right? Like, why yeah. can't you get a real job? Why can't you work at a real company? This was not uh, a thing that people bragged about. It was more of a thing that was uh, meant there was something wrong with you or something was weird. And yeah. so... Uh, but, you know, my, my wife says that, you know, I don't like being told what to do. So that probably had something to do with me wanting to start a company. And, uh, and I had some early mentors uh, kind of in the, around college age who were small business owners who I think had a big impact on me now looking back. And that's what led me to this world. I also, uh, I'm an obsessive personality and... Um, I became obsessed with the early internet and uh, mm-hmm. that, that continued to this day, this idea of kind of connecting everyone around the world, which we used to talk about in 1996, right? Like that that was what was happening with the internet, but it, you know, it's never been as true as it is today, right? Today yeah. it's actually true. Yeah, I think maybe entrepreneur was not a, was not a thing, but you could you could like to build stuff or... Yes, that's like, what I liked. I like building. So I always say like yeah. my... Like I make, I like making something from nothing and that could be software companies, whatever, but I just like the act of creating, uh, yeah. that really, really drives me. And, uh, it's still to this day, whether yeah. it's creating flowers or creating, you know, companies, like I like doing all of it. Flowers? You create yeah, flowers? Yeah, I like or... gar- gardening and, uh, yeah. growing stuff. You know, I like everything. 
what, what, what was for you like the first time you created something and you're like, I'm going to sell it as well? <laughs> oh, that I was going to sell it? Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think. The first time I created something publicly was really the first website that I worked in, worked on while I was at school. And that's what fueled me to do all of this. But first time I tried to sell something was probably at Bolt. You know, we created that and we were trying to sell yeah. advertising and all that kind of stuff back yeah. then. Your first website, you weren't selling. Was it the no. GeoCities website? Or was <laughs> it, a... it was before GeoCities. Before GeoCities. Yeah, I hand-coded it. Yeah, before oh. GeoCities uh, started. You know, they were probably starting a little bit after that. And then um, uh, a couple other competitors to GeoCities were starting that. Yeah. Run. But back then you had to hand code it. You had to hand code your website. Mm -hmm. Just uh, some HTML uh, code. Yeah. And yeah, that yeah, was yeah. it. Yeah. It's crazy. So you like building things. Yeah. Um, you have had a bunch of startups in the marketing space mostly. Mm -hmm. Were most of these like bootstrapped or vc funded uh no, only uh one of them was technically bootstrapped that was ghostry i just funded mm -hmm. that the rest of them have been vc funded including yeah. drift yeah and is that is that each time something you um you thought about beforehand or is something that you just at some point you needed money and you um the early ones i i think you know compete and a couple and compete i definitely you thought about it beforehand and then ever since compete uh, after we sold compete uh, I've not thought about it and thought about funding it myself, including at drift. And so, um, you know, in all those cases I wanted to, I my intent in the beginning was to fund it myself. But mm -hmm. as I tell people like the, the way to get investors interested in investing is to tell them that you don't need any money. And that's, yeah. that's the truth. And that, that was the truth in all the cases. And so but you, you didn't want them to give you money. Why did you end up having them give you money? <laughs> because, um, well, it depends on every case, but in the case of drift, which is the most recent, I'll talk about that. It's because mm -hmm. we knew we were going to try to build an enduring company. We knew that we were building a SaaS company. And by now we had built so many SaaS companies that we knew the economics of SaaS. And if we wanted to, build a company at the speed that we wanted to build it and at the magnitude of, uh, of how big mm -hmm. we wanted it, that it was going to take capital because uh, it once it's easy to get SaaS going now, very easy, uh, but to really get to meaningful sizes, um, mm -hmm. capital, because yeah. SaaS as a model consumes a lot of capital. Yeah. And, and when would you take the capital? Like when do you decide like my SaaS is ready for the capital? Uh, and it, it's a personal choice for everyone. For uh, for me at Drift, uh, mm -hmm. we took that capital uh, day one. Day one. Day one, which yeah. is unusual. But they 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 have to want to give it to you day one. Uh, they did so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is not always the case. Yeah. yeah. What what is it that uh, that you guys are doing at Drift nowadays? Like you just said before uh, before the talk that you're very busy. Uh, yeah. Crazy. Um, you know, I'd say we're pretty crazy right now. What are we doing? We're trying to scale the company from, um, from a revenue standpoint, from people standpoint. We started this year, last year, 2017, we started the year around 20 people. I'd say 20 mm -hmm. people. We ended the year at 
100 people. Uh, we wow. started this year, obviously, at 100 people. We're going to end the year around 240 people. So therein mm-hmm. lies a lot of stuff that we're doing, right? Like a lot of hiring, scaling, training, onboarding, educating, making people effective, all that kind of stuff um, we're doing. And, you know, uh, and then trying to grow from uh, proportionally from a revenue size. We're trying to 5x our revenues uh, this year. Last year, we uh, 20x our revenue. Of course, still yeah. from a small number, but uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to grow quickly. And uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're fortunate in that, um, that, that there's a lot of headroom in where we're trying to grow. Yeah. And, and in all this, where do you fit into the picture? Like, what is <laughs> what your do I role do here? what do you do? Yeah. I do podcasts like this one. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's all? That's all I do. Um, it's pretty good. I, yeah, I wish. Uh, I don't <laughs> just do that. I, I, what I do is um, I spend most of my time um, trying to help other people, you know, reach their full potential and become effective. That has everything to do from spending time in hiring, I'm involved mm-hmm. in every hire that we make, um, from intern to the highest level. So I'm in the part of that interview. Um, yeah. So that takes, you can imagine that takes a lot of time if we're trying to add 140 people and everyone you talk to is not, you don't end up hiring. So that takes mm-hmm. a lot of time. Uh, beyond that, I'm, I work with our customers a lot. I spend a lot of time with customers. I spend a lot of uh, time in marketing. And so... I help a lot uh, between marketing and product, but I'd say more marketing than anything else because my co-founder here is great on products. So he's mm-hmm. he take over some stuff there, but I'm naturally, gra- I naturally gravitate towards product and now marketing. And so I do our podcast, I do videos, I do a lot of speaking. So mm-hmm. fly all over the place, all over the world speaking uh, spending time with our customers, spending time with prospects. So I'm constantly on the move and, you know, my, my days are, are not the days that an introvert like myself look, uh, would dream of, right? Like they're not, I love every minute of it, but you know, my, my calendar is back to back to back, uh, most days. Yeah. And, but that's what the business needs. Right. And it's not like me doing deep work right now and putting some headphones on and just sitting in front of my computer is not going to move the company forward because I'm not helping anybody else, right? I'm not coding anymore. I don't really have an effect when I do that. Yeah. So it's all meetings for you back to back whole day. Yeah. Meetings or speaking with people or walks or stuff like that. So I hate meetings personally. So I try to, Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of normal meetings, but I do have a lot of one-on-ones. I believe a lot of investing in that. So we spend Mm -hmm. a lot of one-on-one times, mostly walking around, right? Walking and talking and stuff like that. Uh, but you know, in terms of meetings with process and bureaucrats and all that bureaucratic process, no, we don't have a lot of that. Yeah. And if you say one-on-ones, is this mostly to, uh, align on the way of working or is it mostly to align on um, what to do or how to do something? Um, it depends, you know, the way I think about it is, and the way that we frame it is the one-on-one is owned by the person whose one-on-one it is. So whoever mm-hmm. I'm meeting with, like it's their, it's up to them to uh, create that agenda, right? It's their meeting, right? I am just yeah. there to help them in whatever area. So sometimes it might be some of the stuff you mentioned. It might be specific. How do I do something? The how. Mm-hmm. More often, it's the why. Why am I doing something? Why? Why should I feel excited about this? 
Um, and, and so I spend a lot of my time mostly there on the why, making mm-hmm. sure they're excited, making sure they're fired up, making sure they're focused in the right areas. Um, less about the how because you know they they know the how better than I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. So and it's, it's mostly one on ones. It's helping on the marketing also in one on ones or. Yep. Uh, uh, marketing, yeah, one-on-ones. The marketing is a little different in that I uh, actually produce some of the marketing. So meaning yeah. I'm on the video, I'm on the podcast. So that one, I'm on, on both sides of it. But from an idea standpoint and um, from a process standpoint, really Dave, who's our head of marketing, runs that. Yeah. You're on videos, et cetera, but you're not actually... Yeah. Are you writing stuff or... No. Uh, no. not really. I, I, I talk more than anything else. And then, uh, maybe I'll transcribe some of that stuff, but, um, no. you'll transcribe it yourself or, uh, sometimes and sometimes someone else oh. will do it for me. And you mentioned that you're, you're like spending your time hiring now. Yeah. And you also mentioned that you're going from hundred to 240. Yep. Do you think you will still be involved in every hire at the end of the year? <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out. Um, does it sound feasible to you? Or? <laughs> uh, at 240, it does, because I did that before. You know, it, yeah. uh, it helps, but I, I grew my team to over 200, and I was involved in most of that. Um, so I do think it's possible. I do think it's important. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, this year, I def, I will. Will I be next year? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what our growth target is for next year in terms of um, headcount, but it will probably be the same kind of doubling again yeah 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 that that's gonna be an enormous amount of work if you want to be involved in everything <laughs> for sure for sure but um but it is the the work you know i always say it's the, the things that don't scale that help you scale like in terms of yeah. recruiting people the reason that i started doing the kind of being in the process years ago was that that helps with the recruiting process. Like I have people mm-hmm. all the time that I may be recruiting, you know, very junior level or maybe someone who's a co-op or an intern and they'll say things like, wow, I've never worked in a company or I've never heard of a company where uh, the CEO will, will ha- talk to me. Mm-hmm. Right? As crazy as that sounds, right? That sounds crazy to me. Like they've yeah. never worked anywhere where this person would even talk to them, right? Forget about being in the interview thing. Uh, so it's... It- that yeah. has a meaningful impact that helps on the recruiting process. And it is those small things like that, that people will remember and they will tell other people about. Mm-hmm. It also sets the culture somehow for are like, like it, it, it opens up some culture of openness and transparency. If you can talk to the CEO then. Yep. Yeah. Is it, you also mentioned you're walking around. This is also a way of, of getting people to, open up and, and bring their issues to you or hundred percent. So, um, yeah. I always tell, I always kind of, kind of coach people on my team to never have a one-on-one meeting, you know, uh, sitting down in a conference room or in a meeting room or things like that, because it, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like, um, a, it doesn't feel like a natural discussion. It feels like an interrogation, right? It yeah. feels like you're being questioned by the police. And so, mm-hmm. And the worst versions of these are when people sit there with, with a laptop open, writing everything, typing everything that you're writing, or notepad, writing every word that, that David is saying. It's insane, right? There's no way that you're going to be natural or comfortable if, some, mm-hmm. if you're looking at someone writing down every single word that you're saying. 
Instead, make it like a normal conversation that you would have with someone. Walk around with them, get a coffee, uh, just go for a stroll outside and just let them talk. And I find when you do do that, people are more comfortable. People are, um, you know, are willing to tell you things that they would not normally uh, tell you in that other process. So you're actually walking around doing one-on-ones? Oh, yeah. 100%. I don't carry any notebooks, nothing, writing down nothing. I'm just focused. Mm-hmm. I'm just paying attention to them. Yeah. Sounds like a cool job. You said, you said as, an, as an introvert, it's not really what you, want, what you like to do all day, but walking around sounds, sounds good, no? Yeah, the walking around part, I, I, I'll say I like that part. I like that yeah. part. And I love one-on-ones. It's like big group meetings and stuff like that that is not the, the best. Like like town hall meetings and all. Yeah. Do you do those or? Yep. We are going to do one tomorrow. So we do one usually the first Tuesday of every month. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this one we delayed a week, but uh, we do those here. I give a lot of public talks. So I do that all the time. So I'm constantly. And then we, we onboard new people. Uh, we have people start on the... Um, two days a month. There's two Mondays a, a month that can, people can start. And mm-hmm. um, on those days, you know, we have myself and my co-founder give like an hour long kind of onboarding talk to those people. I give like half an hour and he gives the other half hour. And so uh. I spend my time there. And that's usually like five to, I don't know, from like three to nine people, depending on the class. Yeah. What kind of other rhythms do you have in the business in terms of like how long are the sprints? How, how, uh, uh, we don't believe in sprints, but uh, no? no, well, I don't believe, well, I don't, I should say I don't mm-hmm. believe in them. Um, what we do is we let every product team decide their own cadence. We have something called a monthly marketable moment uh, where we make, we release something big from one of the product teams every month. That is mm-hmm. like a standalone product almost. Uh, it's huge. And, and, but, you know, those teams could work on that for a while. We have lots of teams working in parallel. Mm-hmm. And, um, but otherwise, we work on a daily cadence. We don't work, we don't work on this kind of artificial sprint thing. And yeah. uh, we work on this daily cadence. And we have a, a methodology that, is, that we've created, which is like this continuous development methodology. And, mm-hmm. and I've written about it in this book I wrote called Hypergrowth. It's free on our website or you can get it on Amazon. But okay. it goes into details about it. Um, but, you know, our cadence otherwise outside of that monthly meeting is that we have uh, a Monday metrics meeting. So this morning we had a, we had a meeting. We had that at, at 9.30 a.m. Everyone's there and it's a 15-minute meeting. We don't like to spend too much time in meetings. And we just mm-hmm. go over last week's performance across product, marketing, sales, uh, support, success, every team. Uh, it's really quick. It's 15 minutes or less. And then we have, we bookend that and we have an uh, a all-company meeting on Fridays. It's called Show and Tell. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's at the end of Friday. So it's Friday afternoon at the end of the day and people have beers and it's fun. And in that, people show what they worked on that week. And we started that tradition mostly for the product team so that they mm-hmm. can show customer stuff that they've released to the customer that week and educate the rest of the team. But now everyone, every team in the company presents something. And again, it's really fun and quick and laughs and beers and relax. And, it, and then that ends the week. 
So we yeah. have these bookends of the beginning of the week is like, how do we do? And the end of the week is what did we actually make? Yeah. Uh, for the, how do we do part? Uh, if it's only 15 minutes, how do you actually, um, decide on how to deal with the metrics, like how to improve them or yeah. where, where does that happen? That happens. The individual teams do. That's what they work on all week on how to make it better. We have yeah. one person uh, who's our VP of operations who owns that Monday metrics meeting and mm-hmm. he puts everything together and he decides on the flow of that meeting. And he's the only one that's presenting. He's doing a quick run through of all the metrics. By mm-hmm. now we have, we've done it so for so long that we have a pretty streamlined and pretty effective method there. But the solution on how to fix things those solutions that don't come from, from us, from me or from him or from someone yeah. else, they come from the teams, the teams. Have mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. Sounds good. What is it? What is it then actually as a, as a, as a main skill that you think you, or as a set of skills that you think you as a founder bring to the business? <laughs> uh, I've tried to figure this out over the years. You know, what, what do I actually, what am I good at? Um, what am I, uh, you know, I'd say I'm good at, zooming in zooming out then that's my style of management so i'm good at going whatever the domain is because i'm obsessive mm-hmm. uh, about learning i can learn things really quickly at a, a fairly uh good level not the deepest but pretty deep and so i can go pretty deep because i'm so obsessive about stuff and um so i can do that i can zoom in and then i zoom out a lot and then i work at a very high level and so what that looks like every day is that I'm good at uh, or I'm decent at the high level stuff. And I spend a lot of time there and we talked about some of that stuff. And then I zoom in very low level, like having interviews with people, giving product feedback, giving marketing feedback, and then I zoom mm-hmm. back out. And so that's kind of my skill now uh, that I can do that. Uh, I spend no time in the middle. Like how do we solve something and how do we do that? That's the teams all own yeah. that. I work at the uh, very high level and a very low level and I care about every single detail. Like we're moving into a new office. I care about, you know, what do the colors look like? What does the layout look like? What does the experience look like? How will it feel for a new person coming in? Like, you know, how, just like all sorts of little details that people overlook. I spend mm-hmm. a lot of time thinking about those and, um, and uh, worried about those. And then someone else makes it happen. Yes. Yeah. And, and they decide on how to make it happen. Yeah. Got it. Uh, if you, if you say you're obsessive about learning, how, how do you go about it? How do you usually learn stuff? Uh, I'm, I'm like an, uh, you know, I'd say I'm, I'm super hands-on. So, mm-hmm. you know, I read a lot. I'm a, I, um, I spend a books lot or of blogs my, or, uh, no blogs, books, Mm-hmm. Uh, books, videos, uh, audio, that kind of stuff, but usually long form, mostly books and from mm-hmm. mentors. So I have a lot of mentors and role models and people. So I spend another bit of my time just going meeting with people that are ahead of me, mentors that I have learning from them. And I given up, I used to read a lot of blogs and stuff like that, but most of that information is, is not great. It's not useful. So I stopped doing that. And what I look for now is I look for lessons from people who are like 10, 20 years ahead of me 
and mm-hmm. the lessons that have stood the test of time. And I also look at books that have stood the test of time. So I'm not necessarily reading the newest book, but I'm reading mm-hmm. books that have been around for a while and have kind of lasted. And so I'm looking for those things that have stood the test of time and not fads. And I find most blogs and stuff like that are very low, little detail and very much a fad in how they mm-hmm. write things. And so I don't, I don't actually spend a lot of time doing that anymore. Yeah. So what are some of the books that we have to think of when you say books that's at the test of time and, and who, who, like, who are your mentors? <laughs> I have so many. Uh, well, I have a number of them. They're always changing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had my first three mentors all had the same first name, Sam. One of the, yeah. One of them was uh, Sam Lee and he was a guy who was a mentor to me in like high school age to college age. And he had, um, he was the first kind of like a successful multimillionaire person I ever met in my life and uh, uh, immigrant from Taiwan started a bunch of wholesale businesses in New York where I grew up. Then my second mentor was also named Sam and he was a virtual mentor. So not, a, a, you know, I believe in virtual mentors a lot. And that's, mm-hmm. that Sam is Sam Walton. And that is through the book. Uh, and I've read everything I can on Sam Walton. He started the company called Walmart. Mm-hmm. And I uh, love his book, Made in America, that's required reading here at Drift. And, uh, and then my, my third Sam is uh, called Sam Zales. And um, he has been a part of many successful companies and is a COO of a public company called Car Gurus here in uh, Boston. And, um, and I spend time with him. So those are, I have other mentors but besides those, but I'll, I'll start with those three. Yeah. Cool. And uh, what is the, the, the latest good book you've read? Uh, and why did you choose to read it? Oh my goodness. I'm always, uh, I read so many books that I'm, uh, uh, when people ask me for book recommendations or what was the last good book, I'm always like uh, stuck on, on those. I'd say I just added, there are three books that I give to every person in yeah. um, I, I, I Drift on the management team. And mm-hmm. because these are the three books that I think have shaped the way that we think I Drift the most. One of them is, I mentioned already, and it's called Made in America by Sam Walton. So that's mm-hmm. the story of Walmart. The yep. second book is called The Everything Store, and it's about Amazon. Mm-hmm. And then the third book is called Built from Scratch. And that book is uh, the story of a company called Home Depot, right? Which yeah. is a, a big company here. And uh, both of those, it's funny that, and I didn't do this on purpose because both of those, all three of those books are books about retail. Right? Yeah, that's what to, I was about to say. Yeah. yeah, it has nothing to do with <laughs> what you would think that I do. Uh, but they've had the biggest impact in in in, uh, in the way that I think. And that's why I give those books out and ask everyone to read those. And the reason I think so is because, uh, you know, a lot of what Drift does and, and the thing that I'm obsessed around is creating this, the most kind of customer-centric company possible. And all of these books, because they are retail, mm-hmm. they are... A hundred by default, they have to be customer centric, right? Because they're dealing, that is the entire retail business is just dealing with your customer. And so all three of these books are good models in, in building customer centric companies. And that's why they, they've had a big impact to me, but I've read a million, million, million other books that I could recommend. And, um, one that I'll just shout out in that if you're looking for, uh, trying to be the best version of yourself. It's a book called Peak Performance, and it is written mm-hmm. by Brad Stuhlberg. Fantastic book. Uh, Brad is Brad is actually a personal coach of mine, so I'll disclose that. And so he coaches me, and we have calls um, a couple times a month. 
Yeah. Now back to the 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 the, the, the three books. Uh, mm-hmm. I've I've read the the one of Amazon myself. The one yep. of, about Walmart is on my list. The one of Home Depot, not yet. Okay. Um, I'm I'm seeing that they are very customer centric and how that yes. can inspire you. But what are some like 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 lessons you would, for instance, take from the Amazon book that you've implemented at Drift? Because that mm. that I have a hard time seeing. <laughs> <laughs> you have a hard time seeing it. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's like top of my head. Yeah, Amazon is probably uh, the most uh, formative kind of um, company in terms of drift and how we think about things. You know, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, because what you see of drift today is, you know, you see chat, you see sales, you see that kind of stuff that you mentioned at the beginning. But yeah. fundamentally, what we're trying to do at Drift, uh, kind of our long-term vision, is that we're trying to create the new way that businesses buy from businesses. Mm -hmm. And so uh, because of that, there are a lot lot of things that are more related to Amazon, at least from the retail side of things, than you would think, right? Because Amazon is fundamentally the way that we all buy from, uh, that we all buy from businesses, right? As consumers. And so we're trying to look at the models that they have and trying to see which ones of those can we take and learn from which one of those are not applicable and you know, mm-hmm. how do we use these? And so because of that, there's a lot that overlap. It's like, if I just think about the way that we train people inside of drift uh, on marketing, right. And in marketing, mm-hmm. we talk a lot about, or I talk a lot about um, cognitive biases, how people, social psychology, how do people make decisions to yeah. buy things And uh, the best example or one of the best examples that you could use is to go look at the Amazon product detail page, right? Mm. And if you've been buying from Amazon as long as I have since the beginning, since they started, you'll remember that that product page has not really changed that much, right? Design, Design has advanced a lot, but it hasn't changed a lot. And it's, you know, one of the reasons I believe that's true is because it's like the perfect page from a social psychology standpoint. And we'll use that page as an example for our marketers to teach them about things like scarcity, right? And where do you Mm -hmm. see that on that page? You see that, um, you know, if you look at the page and it says, hey, you get free delivery by Wednesday. If you order within within eight hours and 13 minutes, you'll get this at your house by Wednesday. Or you'll see little things that'll say like, uh, you know, only only three left in stock. Order mm-hmm. now. More coming soon, right? And so yeah. that's an, that's scarcity. Then you look at things like social proof, right? Which is another way that we make decisions. And then you can see the customer reviews on all the product pages. You can mm-hmm. see the customer images that people have uploaded, the videos that people have done, uploaded. And all of those things are social proof for this thing. And you can see, uh, you know, how many how high this thing ranks in terms mm-hmm. of being a bestseller, again, social proof. Uh, and so I can continue on and on, but there's so many cognitive biases. And this page, you know, can have, you know, when we count, can have anywhere from five to 10 different cognitive biases all working at once on this page. Why mm-hmm. it's such a successful example for us in marketing. Yeah, I can see how it how it's, uh, can easily translate to marketing. Does it also uh, inspire your products or your company? Oh, it, it definitely does. Um, you know, there we have very similar uh, kind of leadership principles that they have, you know, about, you know, obviously about being customer centric, about um, mm-hmm. seeking out the truth, about having a bias for action, 
right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that is important to us. So our speed is incredible. Their speed is incredible. Uh, yeah. So it translates on that. And in terms of our product, obviously we're we're selling to businesses and people who have salespeople. They don't do any of that. So that part, uh, that if you just look at it from that point, then you're like, oh, they're not similar. Uh, mm-hmm. But they are similar in, in the mechanics of how that works because at the end of the day, we are people uh, who are buying yeah. on Amazon and whether you sell B2B or not, you're still, still a person buying from another person. Yeah. So like Amazon's recommendation engine and Drift's chatbots are one and the same thing in the end. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Just uh, the last question. Uh, uh, not the most easy one. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you ever got? Oh my goodness. That's a, that is a good question. No one's asked me that. I'm surprised. Um, what is the best piece of advice? Um, probably the one I'm just coming up with the top of my head is uh, mm-hmm. sleep on it. Sleep on it. Yeah. You know, we all want to jump and react and, and uh, give an answer to something right away. But often the best answer is just to sleep on it. And well, what are some of the it. things you sleep on? Oh, I, I use the sleep on a technique with every hire that we make. So every mm-hmm. person that I talk to, I don't give my opinion on the conversation to the hiring manager until the next day. I let myself sleep on it. And, uh, and that often gives me the right answer because you can have yourself... Um, become very excited during the interview process because they were funny and you talk to them and you need someone in this role and all blah, 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 all these things. And, uh, and then you might end up with the, the wrong answer. And so I sleep on it. And uh, if I still feel excited the next day, then that's the right answer. Cool. Thank you, David, for being on Founder Coffee. Uh, thanks so much for having me. This was awesome. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys.